If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's Tuesday. Thank you for coming to the program. Two hours of news and analysis coming right up. It's law in the chamber, ready to fire away. Uh, we're going to be joined in the first hour by a very special guest. We're going to be joined by Piers Robinson from the Organization of Propaganda Studies. Also, Propaganda in Focus is his online journal. Great group of people. We had one of his colleagues, Mark Crispin Miller, on the program yesterday. Talk about election integrity still. That's an amazing segment. We've uh, highlighted that on our Twitter feed now. You can go back and listen to that. Great uh, piece of resource there in the upcoming 2024 conversation, Mark Crispin Miller. But Dr. Piers Robinson, we're going to be talking about not just propaganda, but narratives. And uh, we can kind of trace the genealogy of the narratives, uh, of the consensus, of the political reaction, of the belief systems in the public. We can trace that from 9-11 into the various conflicts, to the COVID crisis, and now to Gaza. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. And we'll also talk about some of the recent developments and comments made by uh, members of the intellectual dark web. Uh, perhaps we'll delve into that uh, as well in the first hour. And then in the second hour, uh, we're going to be joined uh, on the fly uh, by our roving correspondent, Basil Valentine, for some updates uh, on the latest from the Middle East. I'll also share a couple of stories with you uh, in just a moment. And then also in the second hour, in the last segment, we're going to be joined by Blake Lovewell for an update on the financial system, also on crypto. And the Bitcoin ETF is around the corner. Will it be confirmed and how soon? What's that going to do for the price of Bitcoin? Will that carry the rest of the cryptocurrency markets back up with it? in correlating on that same wave. We'll talk about that with Blake. We covered some of that last week, but there's a lot of people getting into uh, investments in the early part of this year, small investors. A lot of our listeners are just getting involved in these things. Some of you have been involved for, for years in this space. Uh, we're gonna give you some just basic observations and fundamentals to maybe help you to be a little more informed uh, when you're getting into these spaces. So I'm looking forward to that conversation uh, as well. Now, over to the Middle East. We hear a lot about media freedom in the West. This is a very popular topic to virtue signal. Uh, if you're a politician and you want to grandstand on the panels or at the WEF in Davos, who coincidentally is meeting uh, in just a couple of weeks, uh, the great and the good will be gathering in Davos for the World Economic Forum's annual confab. It's going to be a panic fest uh, because everything they've built up uh, in terms of propaganda and narratives has been absolutely de destroyed uh, over the last 12 months by pretty much the collective voice of the uh, unsilent majority, uh, which is now vocalizing its uh, absolute rejection of all of these globalist machinations. But so you can see that they're commiserating uh, ahead of time, preemptive commiserations by the WEF. It's funny listening to some of their statements. They've got whole themed panel discussions on how to recapture the narrative, how to regain control of the minds of you <laughs> and me and everybody else 
so they can ram all these uh, technocratic uh, policies and agendas uh, down the track. They've, they're potentially stalling a little bit, especially the climate agenda. That's an interesting conversation as well. Maybe we'll touch on that too uh, in our conversation with Piers Robinson. But they talk a lot about media freedom and protecting the press and the free press and all this stuff. Very popular discussion. Everybody wants to kind of be associated with that, that sort of a cause du jour, if you will. But, you know, the funny thing is, if you're if you're in Britain especially, or you're in the United States, uh, you really shouldn't be involved in this conversation if you are either implicitly or you've explicitly uh, endorsed the incarceration of unconvicted, uncharged, dissident journalist Julian Assange, founder of WikiLeaks, who's currently languishing in a Category A prison uh, outside Southeast London. And he's been there for a long time, and they want to keep him on ice for a very long time. Extradite him to the U.S. Who knows? He's in limbo right now. Will he survive? I don't see anybody standing up for press freedom and talking about the release of Julian Assange, who's already paid his... Uh, his time uh, to the establishment, whatever that plan was to keep him as an arbitrarily detained uh, prisoner for, well, going on about 13 years now, according to the UN Special Rapporteur on torture, Nils Melzer, in his various reports on this important topic. But when we talk about media freedom and protecting journalists, there is no outcry whatsoever across the mainstream media, the great and the good in New York, in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the moralizing on CNN regarding uh, what's happening to Israel, which uh, we just don't get enough of uh, on that network and Fox News and all the rest of them. Nobody's talking about the amount of journalists that have been killed in Gaza. And put this into perspective, right now we're looking at somewhere above 100, maybe 110 journalists have been killed in Gaza. Some of them have been murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, if you think that that's a coincidence, that journalists and their families have been singled out for airstrikes or bombing raids, uh, think again, because the evidence is becoming overwhelming in this department. And Israeli airstrikes have just killed uh, yet another journalist. Al Jazeera is reporting on this as well, as well as Al Jazeera journalists. But uh, Hamza Dahoud was the eldest son of the Gaza Bureau for Al Jazeera, while Dahoud, who previously lost other family members in Israeli bombing raid. And we would say that this is probably in terms of conflicts. Uh, this many journalists have been lost, uh, killed, injured in the whole of the Second World War, and that lasted uh, a number of years, and only in the last three months are we scraping 100 on the uh, journalist uh, fatality list, which is coming fast and furious out of Gaza. So at some point, you have to call this a crisis. At some point, you have to say, well, this is a major mark in history. We We need to draw a line under this. We can't have journalists being slain in this way, uh, and this is going alongside of the people that are being massacred as well in Gaza. So this is not uh, any sort of hyperbole or exaggeration. This is actually happening. The Committee to Protect Journalists has warned in December that journalists are being killed in Gaza at an unprecedented rate. The vast majority of the victims, of course, were Palestinians, the NGO noted, according to 
the committee, uh, there's an apparent pattern of Israeli targeting journalists and their families. Mind you, this isn't me saying this. This is the Committee to Protect Journalists, the CPJ. And 20 reporters have been detained by Israeli forces arbitrarily, and another three are still missing. So, you know, you add up these totals, and it's a little bit disturbing to say the least. And one has to ask the obvious question, why is this happening? Is it a fact that uh, Israel doesn't want the world to see the images or hear the words of testimonies coming out of Gaza, especially, especially in the wake of South Africa's invocation of the Genocide Convention to the International Criminal Court, the World Court? because all this is admissible with evidence and there are no statutes of limitation on war crimes there are none so while this case in the icj the evidence has been submitted by south africa very impressive 84 page brief i don't believe they can add anything to this during this round of the adjudication of that case but this will then be filed everything we're seeing and talking about now going forward will be filed and further charges can be laid at Israel. This is just going to be endless. Probably from a PR perspective, this is devastating for Israel, for its brand, for its reputation, for its status among the community of nations going forward. It will be tainted with these and other stories for decades. And that's the reality. And one wonders why and how uh, Israeli officials can make genocidal statements so openly and brazenly and publicly and not not feel any sort of shame or not be reserved about what they're saying it's almost like they think that what they're saying is acceptable and is part of the consensus the same with israeli soldiers dancing uh, on the graves of palestinians or partying in their homes that have been they're about to be demolished after they've been ethnically cleansed out of northern gaza uh, doing TikTok videos, uh, all sorts of depraved and other disgusting lewd acts on camera, and then posting that on TikTok, on social media. There's no censorship of the Israeli posts on this, but there is heavy censorship, especially on the meta platforms, Instagram and Facebook, uh, for anything pro-Palestinian or critical of Israel. So we have a massive imbalance here, and I think the people see it. Now, why big tech execs? Uh, do this is 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 yet to be kind of fleshed out that that's a discussion that needs to happen as it was with the twitter files there's political motivation other motivations there but how how this is going to affect the general reputation of this country of its institutions going forward is is beyond a doubt and uh, i think we're only seeing the beginning of this a huge backlash is forming online and Whoever's in charge of their PR uh, really needs to sort of rethink uh, their approach to what's going on. Ditto for the military and the government. But hey, that's not for us to decide. We just comment on it, give you the information, and uh, maybe make some hopefully timely suggestions for our political leaders on our side. Let's take a break with TNT. Today's News Talk, I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back after these messages with a very special guest, Dr. Piers Robinson, joining us for a very interesting and I think a deep discussion on narratives, on information, on propaganda, all this and more on the other side. Stay right there. 
Rick Munn on TNT Radio. There was a, a statement that I saw last week that I thought was quite interesting from one of these uh, web spokespeople, the World Economic Forum spokesperson. And one thing that she said that I thought was quite interesting was she said, you know, um, there has been a little bit of a tail off with people buying into the vaccine narrative. And she blamed that on people like us spreading so-called missing disinformation. She said that climate change was a little bit too much of an abstract concept for people to really grab and get their heads around. So that's not really taking off the way they want to either. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you know what? When the water crisis comes, people will understand that because it's simple and everybody needs water. And if you don't have water for a few days at a time, you'll know all about it. So maybe, you know, we're hypothesizing a little bit about what's, what it's going to take to grab people and bring them back on board again with a World Economic Forum type narrative. Could this be what it is? Locked and loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk Today's News Talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Patrick Henningsen Show. We're in the first hour of this live broadcast. And thank you, everybody, in the TNT chat community. We see you have a large number of people in there. Hello. Hope you guys are doing good. We'll try to interact with you throughout the program. But we've got our hands full with breaking news and analysis and great guests like uh, who are going to welcome onto the stage right now, Dr. Piers Robinson. Dr. Piers Robinson's got a great online journal called Propaganda in Focus. It's really become one of the leading publications on this subject. And I encourage people, we'll drop the link in the TNT chat room as well, but I encourage people to visit this and to support the work of Dr. Piers Robinson and his colleagues who in Incredible uh, colleagues like Mark Crispin Miller, we had on the program yesterday, actually talk about election integrity. Piers, hope you're well. Thank you for coming to TNT this week. Hi, Pat. It's, it's good to be with you. It's great to be with you as well. There's a lot going on. I know you're very busy, done a number of uh, virtual conferences uh, recently as well um, over the last weeks and uh, trying to come to grips uh, with where we're at. I know there's a bit of an impasse right now uh, with the situation in the Middle East. It's given time people to, to take a pause and reflect the South Africa's genocide convention case goes forward in the International Courts of Justice. And I want to talk about that and how the narrative might be shifting um, on what's happening with Palestine and Israel. But uh, in general, uh, I want to comment as well on some of your recent work. But narratives, narratives, narratives from 9-11 to Gaza and everything in between. But uh, go ahead, Piers. Uh, sure. I mean, if, if commentary on the current situation in the, in the Middle East, um, 
I mean, we had symposium on Sunday, the International Center for 9-11 Justice. We had Professor Richard Falk, uh, Artif Kabursi, Aaron Good of Vanessa Beely, and Kevin Ryan talking about that. Um, and obviously, you know, we have a, a clear case of genocide. That was very clear from Richard Falk's analysis. Um, clear case of genocide being carried out. Um, uh, he seemed to be relatively optimistic that there's going to be very difficult, it'll be great difficulty legally stopping that from going through because it's so clear cut. Um, I think the broader sort of picture, and Vanessa Beely was talking about this, is that we're at a very, very dangerous moment now in the Middle East. Um, Israel has you know, essentially escalated in response to whatever happened on October 7th. Um, carrying out incredibly aggressive campaign. Um, you've got a lot of warships going into the region now. Um, you've got the sort of the rumblings, the drumbeats of war coming from certain elements in the US uh, towards the point of escalation and possibly escalation against Iran. And certainly the sense we got from, we had great panelists on Sunday uh, and it's UK column of, uh, have got it up online now for people who want to view it. But there was a very real sense coming from all of the speakers that, you know, it's almost a kind of a crunch point now for what you describe as the Western Empire. You know, we have, as you mentioned, 9-11, we have since 9-11 had this rolling regime change wars going on through the international system, initiated by 9-11, which is a self-inflicted wound in order to get these wars going. And the evidence is very clear on that now. Iraq, Afghanistan, segueing through to Libya, Syria, Yemen, and so on, through to, and then of course, this sort of, not quite a diversion, but a parallel track in the Ukraine, proxy war against Russia. You know, this is a remarkable level of warfare um, that the West has been engaging in. Um, but it is at that point of crisis now with this kind of extreme escalation in relation to Gaza, this potential for a regional conflagration going on at the moment. And, you know, the big question I think we were all left with on, on the Sunday symposium um, was, well, is, is what's going to happen now? Is this going to be, are we going to see an escalation now? And of course, we have a very tenuous, well, incredibly tenuous situation in the US with the upcoming elections, the 24 elections, and a lot of dissent within the US. Um, you have a lot of dissent across Western Europe as well, or across Europe rather. And in that context, you, you, one wonders whether the elites who are pushing the regime change wars, who are pushing the conflict in the international system, whether a calculation gets made that, you know, escalation is going to sort of help mobilize populations behind us, because there is so much dissent. And, and this comes from not, not just uh, the current situation in the Middle East, it comes from COVID-19, it comes from 9-11, all of these kind of issues which people have realized that there's been um, a huge degree of deception going on. You know, are we at that point where escalation is going to be seen as necessary both for rallying the populations back home as well as trying to, desperately trying to shore up the remnants of US-led influence in the region? Um, and I think that's the kind of point we're at. And, you know, if, if there is escalation, one's tempted to surmise that it's going to be a hard stop for the West because a serious escalation in the Middle East, if they're capable of doing that, is inevitably going to, I think, bring in China and Russia more directly. So that's your sort of nightmare World War Three scenario. Um, 
whether they could actually do that, whether they could mobilize, I mean, they can carry out bombing campaigns, yeah. And Vanessa Beely's talk on Sunday sort of talked a lot about the number of warships going into the region and a couple of battle groups there and so on. Um, you know, bombing can only do so much. Um, you need you need boots on the ground. So, you know, if if the Western Empire wants to shift to that kind of escalation, where is it going to find the troops? Where is it going to find the, the the constituency within populations across the West to support sending large numbers of troops into a conflict in the Middle East? And for me, I, I find it difficult to imagine that being possible. So then we're left with, okay, this, if they can't really escalate and they don't do something absolutely crazy on that front, um, then we're stuck at this, almost this hard stop, as I keep on mentioning in, in interviews, that um the west's position in terms of military economic but also ideational power is is i think at the end of the road in some ways globally it's a clearly a big shift in distribution of power um and i think that's where we're all sitting waiting to see <laughs> we're all sitting to wait and see what happens next um but i think you know for western countries and who are you know, supporting essentially israel and what israel is doing in gaza um, I think you know this is is the end of the road with the with these with the belligerence that we've seen for a very long time with the warfare. Um, but whether they wake up and realize that, or whether reality will force itself upon the West, you know, maybe a, a military failure, another military failure, as it were. I don't know. Maybe enough dissent will emerge within our elites groups realizing waking up smelling the coffee i don't know um but one way or the other it's it's we're coming into the end of days i think for the western empire um and i guess i guess that's the question escalate fail or recognize that we have to change course in a pretty significant way in terms of how we're approaching um essentially you know the international community and global politics um, so that's my sort of feeling about where we are now. And that's certainly the, the sense we got from the, the panelists we had on Sunday with the International International Center for 9-11 Justice session, Genocide um, and Empire. So I think that's where we're at, a pretty scary time in, in many ways. Um, well, it sounds, it sounds, Piers, like uh, and it, this gets us to the heart of, of, of what your work covers over the years is propaganda and narratives, it sounds like there's a gap that's really forming and uh, we can talk about why that gap has widened, but between what the people are feeling and thinking and what the people are approving in terms of uh, the you know wars and so forth, the foreign policy decisions that you just mentioned, and what the state and governments and the elite cadres in, in within those governments uh, desire. And as that gap widens, uh, there's still they still need the legitimacy of democracy. They still need the consensus or the appearance of a consensus. But that consensus just seems so elusive these days. Is this because of the the scattering of uh, uh, the, the diffusion of media power across the different platforms now? Uh, you know, so this I think this is a fundamental problem because civilizations are formed, our empires are formed around values at the end of the day. You coalesce around values. So I guess if those values aren't being reflected at the top level of what the people's actual values are, 
then the empire can only go two ways. It could break up or become more authoritarian uh, in imposing its will on the people. Is, is, do you think that uh, that to me is the potential impasse here? But you know, what, what's your reading of this this development? Because I think we are at an impasse. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, for sure, I, I agree entirely. There is this gap, there's this disjuncture between the elites in the West and what many people feel. Um, and I'm not just talking about sort of you know the, the people on the street. I'm talking about probably quite a significant swathes of, of the, some of the professional classes now, because you, in a way, you see this with COVID nineteen. A lot of the resistance on COVID nineteen are from people in the professional classes and so on. So th there is this huge gap, and and of course it is, is painfully highlighted if you just switch on mainstream media and watch the news, and you suddenly realize how far detached they are from the feeling on the streets, and how far they are detached from reality. And as you say, the the narratives that they have promoted, the narratives that have, and yeah, we can go back a long way with this, right? You know, the, the narratives of, of the liberal, law-abiding, peaceful West. <laughs> Um, that, that liberal myth that we have um, sort of deluded ourselves uh, into believing for, for some of us anyway for a very long time, that that narrative is is just in stark contrast contrast to the reality of the world. And again, Gaza and the genocide there is a good example of that, and so on. So I I, I think the gap is huge now, um, and. I mean, part of that links back to what I said before about escalation in the Middle East is that, you know, if, if say, say if, if, if the empire, we, let's just call it that for the sake of convenience, wishes to push forward with this belligerence in the international system, you know, at some point you, you need the kind of constituency, the support from the population, et cetera, in order to be able to do that effectively. Um, they can clamp down, become more authoritarian, they can increase censorship and so on. Um, but could they get to the point where they're going to start to engage in conscription to, to get people in the armed forces? I really doubt it. And so I, I think they are stuck with the narratives having become essentially crumbling, as I think you, you suggested in, in the title for this, um, with people who are increasingly waking up and resisting in, in a number of different ways, right? Because you know, you've had these, the, the kind of farmers in Berlin protesting um, over the last couple of days. You've had you know a lot of dissent from different sectors over COVID, over policies that have been implemented, et cetera, as well as the wars and so on. So you've got a lot of, of buildup on that front. And I think it is, um, I hesitate to say it's going to make it impossible for the elites to keep pushing forward, but it makes it extremely difficult and far less likely. Um, and, and some of the, why, the question you started with, why has this happened? I mean, some of this, I think, is a function of empire weakening, you know, sort of the West, especially since 9-11, has embarked upon, you know, ferociously aggressive um, policies in international politics in order to shore up our position. And I think, you know, that, that's been, um, you know, that's created, in a sense, the inevitable pushback from other powers in the international system. I, I guess I'm a bit reluctant, so I hesitated to go for a sort of a straightforward realist kind of analysis of this, but you know, oh, by all means, IR I, theory, I'll realist platform, IR realist, theory. I'll, I'll platform yeah. your realist uh, take. As, as I'm sure you're familiar with, with, with the realist theory, you know, sort of, you know, dominant states in the international system are gonna get balanced at some point 
Yeah, other and and I think that's exactly what we've been seeing. We've been seeing it in in how Russia has operated, how China has operated, etc. And and we're at that point of balancing against the West because of um, the belligerence of the strategies pursued. And of course, those strategies had to be pursued because it was about trying to maintain our power in the international system as it was weakening. And so I, I think, you know, part of this is is just the reality of the, the tectonic shifts in international politics. I guess some historians would say it's the inevitability empires rise and then they decline. And, you know, there's lots of sort of explanations for that, you know, corruption, overreach, overextension, et cetera. Um, sort of, I'm sure historians in decades to come will uh, sort of be discussing how the Western empire came to an end. But, you know, historically, you know, sort of empires do, they rise and fall and we're falling, or the West is falling at the moment. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's the sort of brutal reality of the West's position in the international system, which is creating much of what we're seeing. But at the same time, you know, you raise this point about is there this kind of diffusion in the information space? And I do think that it has been extremely important, um, the development of independent media, as you and I have discussed uh, for many years now, you know, we've seen some incredible journalism going on, and it ain't been coming from the mainstream media. And obviously, the technology that we have available now with the internet and for some time now has provided that essentially a space for critical voices. And, you know, do you know, what? It's, it's really difficult in a way, because when you go back and look and you look at the Vietnam War, for example, you, you'll see an academic debate going on, fairly rarefied and so on, between sort of you know, did, did the Vietnam War was it lost because of public opinion, opinion turning against the war, or was it actually you know sort of effectively you know sort of calculations made that the war couldn't be won at a cost that was willing to be paid, and so it was an internal bureaucratic government sort of decision etc and and it's very very difficult to disentangle these things you know what is actually causing change and, and i think it's the same with the situation we have now i mean I, I think independent media has played a very important role in waking people up um and certainly played a part in in helping to change things but also as i suggested before there's this sort of reality bites problem i think and i think that has been very important as well and i do think you know Again, sort of without emphasizing that we we can't be sure how much you know each you know how much priority to put on on those two dynamics in terms of understanding how we've got to where we are now um, at this point of crisis for the West. It, there's certainly a synergy at the moment um, where if you look at mainstream media and the numbers of people who are tuning in or listening, it's flatlining, right? It's incredible. Um, so people have, have lost trust in, in, in the media institutions. They're going to independent media. Um, and of course, they are reacting to this with the increased drive towards censorship. Just saw Alan McCloyd's been, um, McLeod has been kicked off Twitter from Mint Press News. No explanation at the moment, but very, very worrying. Um, but obviously we see it with the Digital Services Act, we see it with the online harm bill, all of these is, you know, sort of essentially that they're sort of dressed up as, you know, protecting the public and so on. But really what they're about ultimately is censorship and control of information. You have the censorship industrial complex, of course, Schellenberg and Taibbi's work on that, documenting this kind of integration of the fact checkers with mainstream media and control of social media, etc. So they're, they're pushing back as hard 
hard as they can on the censorship front. Um, but at the moment, I mean, you know, we still have a pretty vibrant independent media sphere and a very large number of people who tune into that independent media, perhaps in trust on, on, on the mainstream media. And as you know as well, this, 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 these emerging kind of organizations, resist if you want to call it resistance you can call it resistance but you know we've we've had the anti-imperialist sort of epistemic community for some time and you and i have been a part of that but since covid 19 we've seen organizations such as panda which i'm uh, a, a member of um pushing back against the covid narrative uh international center for 9-11 justice which i'm uh research director for now is is pushing back on the 9-11 narrative and it, it is a whole swathe of these organizations and they interact with independent media as well but those organizations are composed of a lot of people like me and people like such as yourself um you know who have expertise and, and background and who are working extremely hard um to produce material produce knowledge and information and getting it out there and it's it's not quite as organized, obviously, as, as the forces we're up against. But I think that that's, you know, I think you, you've got a pretty powerful pushback coming from, I guess you could call it civil society, but you know, let's call it sort of independent, independent media, independent scholarship and so on, um, resistance, uh, protest groups and so on. And, and this does have a, it's, it's kind of global. It's certainly across Western countries. And it is manifesting itself in terms of an impact upon politics. So here in Germany, you see that AfD is now polling at over, well over 21% um, in Germany. Um, we have what we have in the US context um, and so on, which you're probably more familiar with that than I am. Um, but that's a sign that at least some people in the political establishment are beginning to respond to you know, the grassroots movements to these groups, organizations forming to the independent media. Um, and I'd, I'd hate to put this all down just to sort of the structural dynamics of the end of empire. It's all going to be inevitable that there was no role for people like you and I and everyone else pushing back. Um, I think these things are combining at the moment and, and, and so on. And they're going to probably be seen as essential in the grand scheme of things when we get to cast our eyes back on, on what's going on. Um, and the same argument I'd make about Vietnam, I wouldn't want to downplay the importance of the protest, the, the media coverage, which had a played a key role in, in, in pushing uh, the US out. But as I said, you know, historians will always be arguing about these things. Um, but, you know, we've obviously got a, a, a lot of pushback. And I think a lot of the narrative destruction, as it were, for the Western Empire is is because, yep, they've lost control of the information environment to an extent, obviously not by any means totally, but certainly to a, a significant extent, I think. You talked about the inevitability of these tectonic shifts, these these you know civilizational trends, major political um, and trends among populations. So there is a there is a, a a bit of inevitability there appears. But the problem here is the amount of resources that government is plowing into censorship and some of these activities and, and very powerful organizations. We talk about the ADL uh, in relation to the crisis in Gaza, how much power they wield, the Israeli lobby, et cetera, plus big tech, 
the political factions uh, in Washington that uh, we now know, as you said, through the Twitter files, which I was included as well, not surprised to be in there, but to, that we know uh, was a big effort behind the scenes to grapple control of the narratives. Despite all this, despite the censorship on Syria, despite the censorship on Ukraine, the, the total imbalance, it appeared to be anyway on the surface, it hasn't changed facts on the ground and it really it, it seems to be going the public opinions going against the establishment every time peers despite the interest level is surging on 9-11 and all these issues so there's a yeah. futility there peers from the establishment's point of view so it's really like they have two choices either they you know go for more uh uh, uh common sense uh transparent policies or they're going to just get defeated anyway uh over the long term uh by losing the public support uh the state mm -hmm. so i mean it, it seems to me like it's there is a futility in all the censorship and it's only staving off the inevitable in fact you could argue that the censorship is really going to be a bad ending for the establishment if they continue down this road that's my kind of you know, impulsive feeling on that but uh your thoughts and then we'll uh, I, we'll, t we'll go to break in a minute but go ahead yeah i mean for sure that's how i would read it, it as well that sort of as soon as they i mean you know they've been censoring and engaging in propaganda for a long time but obviously the censorship has got worse and we see this legislation coming through and, and so on um and of course at that point i i think they have you know, they know they've lost the argument right they can't control the argument through honest persuasion at all or heavy duty propaganda they now have to engage in actually shutting people down and you know that's a high risk strategy for them because people just respond by going well okay they're censoring us so they they must be up to no good and and i think if they keep on pushing down on this censorship you know you know what's going to happen people will start putting the effort into hard copy publications circulation i know that we're all geared up for the internet and so on but if they get really severe on this front do you think that do you think you're going to stop <laughs> do you think i'm going to stop <laughs> no way i mean the people will and we've already seen some of the hard copy newspapers coming out under Krant in the Netherlands um, and so on. And, you know, we can shift gear and do that if necessary. Um, and then they're going to have to try and censor that. And then it's going to be, they'll have to engage in much more physical activity against us in order to try and censor on that front. And they just destroy, as you suggest, more and more their legitimacy um, through that process and weaken their hand. Yeah, that disconnect is just uh, so pronounced right now uh, between where the people are and where the establishment is. Uh, it's reactionary uh, in the extreme uh, right now. We're seeing it, but uh, hopefully there's uh, some bright bright things on the horizon. But I want to continue this discussion. We're talking with Dr. Piers Robinson right now, uh, Organization for Propaganda Studies, Propaganda and Focus. He'll also talk about his other projects uh, on the other side. Let's take a break with TNT, today's news talk. We'll be right back after these messages. I was such a young age. Everything changed. My name is Chloe. When I was 13, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. When I found out, I just didn't know how to react. I felt like everything was just kind of closing in on me. It just became a routine. Dad's doing chemo. I'd come home from school, wait for mum to finish work, and we'd go straight to the hospital, spend a few hours there, just draw. It was hard to navigate going to school. Hundreds of kids, and I was the only one with a dying dad. He was diagnosed in March, and then he died in October. 
towards the end, I heard about Canteen. It kind of felt nice to know that they had other people like me. They understood what I was going through and we didn't even have to chat about cancer. In 2020, I became a youth ambassador. So I can help others the way they helped me. I've done so many things since I was 13. I've graduated high school, university, gotten my licence, made a move across the country. Life now is just a whole lot more fun. Please give a gift today to support more young people like me experiencing cancer. The impact of a meal goes well beyond feeding our bodies. Because when people are fed, futures are nourished. Everyone deserves to live a full life. And with your help, together we can end hunger. Join the movement at feedingamerica.org slash act now. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. Welcome back, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT, today's news talk. Patrick Henningsen here. We're in the final segment of the first hour. I'm joined right now by Dr. Piers Robinson. Propaganda and Focus is the leading journal uh, at the moment in this subject, and uh, he's one of the founders of this publication. Great work there. You'll read and some great exhaustive studies as well, trying to grapple with the information space. It's certainly a good starting point if uh, this is a subject you want to pursue and also get involved in some of these activities. Piers, now, uh, right now, I know you just uh, finished a virtual conference um, and looking at narratives around 9-11. Tell us more about your organization as well and uh, what the uh, what the objectives are of, of this organization. Go ahead. Well, in the International Center for 9-11 Studies, this is an organization which I joined in May of 2023. It was established by Ted Walter, um, and it was a, a rebirth of, of an organization which had been in place since 2007, which essentially you know, represented some of the core research community looking at the question of 9-11, um, looking ultimately at um, the reality of 9-11 as a false flag event in order to initiate the wars um, in the Middle East. And IC911 is, is primarily set up in order to, to encourage research into not just 9-11, but also into the consequences of 9-11, but also into other what we call structural deep events, which include COVID-19. Because um, understanding that this is a way in which power is exercised in, in the world we live in and so on. Um, so, you know, it's Part of it, obviously, the core focus is on the question of 9-11, but it's also going to broaden out into looking at, you know, all of the regime change wars, looking at sort of, for example, COVID-19 as a structural deep event. It's also involved in, in engagement with the public. We had a great film that Ted directed um, and produced uh, Peace War on 9-11, which is available for free. Um, and that was documented essentially the life of uh, Professor Graham McQueen, who passed away last year, um, who was a, a key researcher, who was one of the first to, or one of the bit, community of scholars who really identified, first of all, that you know, the science behind the building collapses, um, 
and essentially yes that this was a, a self-inflicted wound it was a, a it was a manufactured war trigger um, with involvement of elements within the US government as well as other states in order to get a huge number of wars going in the international system so our, our focus is on that and we're doing um, you know, we, we hope to build it in, in the coming years. Um, I certainly hope to encourage research which helps people locate 9-11 within this broader question of structural deep events, the role of propaganda, how these events are used in order to push populations and are exploited by elites, etc. And so that's a, um, a core area. We have a great amount of material on the website, a website ic911.org. Um, videos going back to the Toronto hearings, for example, a huge wealth of information. Of course, we're also home to the Journal of 9-11 Studies, edited by Kevin Ryan, who's a 9-11 scientist whistleblower. Um, so anyone who wants to understand what happened on 9-11 should, should go to come to our organization and take a look. Um, so very involved in that, and I'm very looking forward to, to working and developing a research agenda with them. Also still working with Panda, um, the organization set up by Nick Hudson, um, South Africa-based, but with a, a global membership. And of course, you know, as in a sense, in the way that IC911, International Center for 9-11 Justice, is, is focusing on 9-11 on and the wars and, and, and so on. Um, with Panda, we've been pushing back on the COVID narrative. And again, there, I think the concern is to um, move beyond, as it were, the specific science. We we know the reality of the injections. We know the reality of lockdowns and how harmful they are. Understanding the politics of COVID-19, the agendas being pushed forward. Um, and, you know, as, as we said in, in mentioned in the break, I mean, this is this is the other big sort of power axis that we're confronting. I, I wrote a paper with Vanessa Beely publishing UK column and uh, substacks talking about these kind of you know we we have the imperialist western military power access pushing the wars we've also seen with covid-19 essentially this global technocratic elite groups who have been behind the construction of covid-19 as a pandemic and behind the lockdowns etc promotion of the injections, and which have been paralleled with World Economic Forum, Great Reset, these grand visions about restructuring our societies, restructuring our economies, and so on. Um, and this, you know, with Panda, and certainly the work that I want to do with them is to try to sort of develop our understanding of you know, the politics surrounding COVID-19. And, and this does take us to this power access, these global elite network. Um, we see it Davos, we see it with the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization. Um, and, you know, uh, that's as big a threat, as it were, to the world at the moment as Western imperialism, I think, sort of maybe perhaps not as immediate and it's different, it's differentiated across different areas and, and so on. Obviously, Palestinians' uh, situation is uh, pressing in terms of immediate life or death. But, you know, the kind of regimes which are being threatened to be imposed upon us globally, whether it's through the pandemic preparedness agenda um, or through censorship regimes, because, you know, we mentioned things like the European Digital Services Act earlier, but, you know, organizations such as the United Nations are completely on board with this disinformation narrative, and which is primarily another way of saying we're going to censor information that we don't like. Um, and and those processes, I mean, these are kind of these have a global, obviously a global component to it, and and it raises a whole series of questions as as I discussed in this paper with Vanessa about, okay, I mean, 
are we looking at sort of elite groups who are primarily anchored in the West driving this global technocratic movement? Or is this a genuinely global process where we've got elite blocks around the world who are sort of essentially working out how do we restructure the financial system? Um, how do we control our populations? And and I think, you know, these are both of those, I think, are very real possibilities and so on. Um, but in a sense, you know, wherever we locate the precise center of power and all of that, um, the immediate thing is what that what is trying to be created through things such as a pandemic preparedness agenda or global censorship regimes is essentially, you know, a highly authoritarian, non-democratic um, form of governance coordinated through international organizations and um, not working in the interests of, of people. I mean, there's a backdrop to it, right? Of course, as, as you know full well, there is this kind of, sort of this technocratic, there's an ideology behind it. You see it in the World Economic Forum. You see it in this kind of um, sort of waxing lyrical about digitized societies, how great it would be if we will all have digital ID and, and so on. Um, and this is essentially, as Nick Hudson always argues, this is just, this is ultimately this concentration of power. This is, um, it's obviously not democratic. It's obviously for any of us or anyone who studies, you know, history and, and so on, and also understands why we came up with ideas such as democracy, this is incredibly dangerous when you concentrate that kind of power into organizations. Um, and, you know, obviously with Pan, but also in, in a way with, with, with IC911 is, is part and parcel of understanding how corrupt elites use events, exploit events, instigate events in order to pursue objectives, control populations. And, you know, I think, you know, uh, as I'm sure you agree, and many of your listeners probably feel exactly the same, we're, we're facing some pretty big monsters <laughs> at this point in time. Um, and, you know, we have to do what we can to inform people and organizations such as Panda, IC911, and the work through propaganda and focus. Obviously, with that, we're just trying to create a platform for experts to write, which, um, you know, you're hard pressed getting good material into academic journals because there's so much gatekeeping going on. Not entirely impossible, but, you know, that's a a big problem um and all we can do is, is raise awareness try to organize try to push back try to contribute to um i don't know do you think is is, is there a fledgling sort of global resistance that we can see um or is it very fragmented i, I don't know it's, it seems that there is something there going on um perhaps if we can find a way of unifying between actually and this is a point we, Vanessa and I made, perhaps if we can find a way of unifying the COVID resistance, who tend to be more from the right of the political spectrum with the anti-imperialist um, uh, sort of resistance who tend to be from the left, if we can find a way of unifying them and getting both sides to recognize that sort of there are sort of common power blocks and corrupt elites that we're struggling against, um, that can help unify us, help us to perhaps organize better um you know and that, that's something which i think is going forward is is going to be a, a kind of concern of mine i mean in a sense it's always been a concern of panda of, of you know how do we help coordinate the pushback um and so on but i i think that's you know roughly um 
that's going to be a focus, I think, in the coming years. All the work I'm involved in really is, is about trying to help people ex- understand what's going on um, and then to raise awareness and to help people who are pushing back, say, politically, give them the information and knowledge and, that they need in order to help them do that and so on. Um, but I, I'm kind of suspecting that at the end of all of this, we are going to be left, especially in Western democracies, with big questions about where do we go from here? You know, if it's the end of empire, right, and, and say if the global technocratic elites can be pushed back on and, and so on, um, I think, you know, we've got some big questions in the West of um, our societies, how they operate. If we're not an empire anymore, we're not going to have th- that sort of the benefits of empire, which is built upon exploitation. And that might require some hard thinking about where we are, um, sort of what things we the things we value in society, how we organize our societies, and so on. And of course, these are vast questions. But um, you know, when empires come to an end, say for us in the West, when pem- empires come to an end, I mean, this this is the kind of thing which then has to ha- something new has to emerge from that. Um, and I think we're facing these problems in the West. And of course, we're stuck at the moment in this kind of the political crises we're seeing, especially as we can see in the US at the moment. Um, and people are sort of, they can't see the wood for the trees, right? They're just focused on Epstein, you know, these immediate things flying up and so on. But, you know, if we're going through this big period of change, if we have this these global technocrats to, to push back against, that will require organization. But it, yeah, it's, it's going to, come back to questions of um how we maybe it's just a question of res- trying to restore or trying to create <laughs> democracy in a way that it functions properly maybe that's the kind of thing we we should be focusing on but 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 i think also that you know that there are there are some questions some deep underlying questions about um you know where society is going you know there's the drive towards technocratic control values and religion right as well i mean the west is this kind of society which has you know lost god and so on it's not the case for most people in the world and you know i i i think you know if you and i brought up in the liberal tradition and so on you know there is a, a loss of spirituality throughout the west which is i think has become a problem um and so i think it's there's going to have to be thinking along those lines as well sort of cultural civilizational and and our sense of identity spirituality and so on i think all of these things are going to be up for grabs as we fight these monsters um and as we then try to hopefully build you know a, a better world coming out of this both for ourselves locally in the west but also globally and and so on um so we're in a um what's that chinese proverb may may you li- live in uninteresting times or whatever yeah in um, interesting we're, times. We're, we're not we're, we're living in extremely interesting times um and so on so yeah that whole issue lot, of lot get, going getting on getting people to unify is, is always going to be a difficult thing because uh as we've seen with uh even within the COVID or the health health freedom as they call it community as soon as the israel crisis cropped up uh, huge divisions there so politics and tribalism does trump uh you know a, a consensus on things like science or um even public health and so forth so uh, i i'm 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 leaning towards uh, people will re- should rally around ideas so really it's about it's about pursuing the truth at the end of the day we 
politics is like herding cats. Uh, there's so many variables that if we all agree that intellectual, uh, uh, a robust intellectual pursuit of the truth and open, keeping that open and not gatekeeping even within the communities, that's generally, I think, my opinion, a good mm -hmm. way forward. But this is also this is difficult. Even science is political, Piers. Uh, so <laughs> media coverage, money, fame, uh, all these things come into the, into the mix there. So a veritocracy, as Julian Rose uh, said in an interview I did on Sunday, that's, we, we need to, to install a veritocracy. How about that for right. a concept? Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a way to go. I mean, we've got, we're in very, very corrupt systems. And, you know, and, and as you say, you said, focus on ideas. I mean, you know, sort of concentration of power is a bad thing. Censorship preventing people from having open debate, which allows them to get to the truth of matters and so on. Um, you know, we have to fight against that. We need to keep that as a focus, allowing people, we need to, really sort of restore a kind of pluralization of power in a way that gets, you know, really undercuts what we're seeing at the moment with the concentration of power, unelected officials, EU, World Health Organization, UN, and so on. This is completely the wrong way to go. We need to be pushing back towards more grassroots um, meritocracy. Yep, that's a good idea there. Um, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's a big definitely. fight for our autonomy and freedom, I think we're in, and it's going to be going on for some time, probably after we're gone. Let's keep focused on that. Dr. Piers Robinson, thank you for joining us on TNT this week. Much appreciated. Thanks, Pat. Good to be with you. Top of the hour news headlines coming up, folks, so don't go away. we got a whole lot more.